Well, hi, folks. Jack Spiergo here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, September the 7th, 2021. Did take a day off yesterday for Labor Day and have a long weekend, and uh, that leads to a short week. I think many of y'all got to do that as well, so that's where I was yesterday. If you was looking for me in your feed and didn't find me. Today, I've got a great one for you. We have an interview today with Neil Spackman. Some of you will know that name immediately, and some of you will be like, who and what is a Neil Spackman? Neil is an incredible guy. I first met him through Permaculture Voices and, and Jeff Lawton uh, many years ago, and he had just taken on a huge project um, in Saudi Arabia. And I never call it by name because I always pronounce it wrong, and I don't want to do that. Um, but it was a 100-acre project in the middle of the Saudi desert. Uh, where they get like, you know, a few inches of rainfall a year. And, and, and like one of the years that he was doing this project, I think they got eight millimeters. That's that <laughs> in a year. Uh, that's bad, man. That's, 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 that's basically none. And yet he was able to, to restore that ecosystem and, and give hope and, 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 and an economy. Uh, to this group of Bedouin that he worked with there, and they're now replicating that in other parts of Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's pretty amazing. And that was the first big project he ever did. He's now running his own company called Regenerative Resources, and they're using marine ecosystems to restore desert ecosystems and, and, and build up coastal uh, ecosystems that are absolutely amazing. Some of the work that he's doing with mangrove-based systems, and et cetera, that you'll hear about today. And I had followed Neil for a long time uh, while his project in uh, Saudi Arabia was going on. And I kind of lost touch with what was going on there. He had finished that project. He left. He'd been back and done some documentation of it. But unless it kind of popped up for me that here Neil has an update, I kind of lost touch with what he was doing. I was listening to a permaculture podcast uh, not too long ago. And who ended up on the show but Neil himself? Now, that's great. We'll hear a lot about Saudi Arabia. And we heard some about it. But what I was blown away with is what Regenerative Resources is doing in Mexico and Africa with marine ecosystems. And this is, this is earth-changing and for the better. We, we do a lot of world-changing things that are not for the better. This is for the better. And we're going to have a fascinating conversation today about how you actually can make things better in a grand way for everybody and still make the environment better as well and improve biology and diversity and resiliency. And, and, and that while it, it takes thinking differently, it's not, and it takes a lot of effort from a standpoint of if you're going to transform 3,500 acres like one of their projects. There's a, a lot that goes into it, but it's really not that hard because nature has all the answers, and we'll be talking about that more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys that you can help support our show by doing business with our sponsors, and sponsor today, number one today, is ButcherBox. I love ButcherBox. I love the fact that once a month, a giant box of meat shows up at my front door. 
and that I've got grass-fed beef in there, pastured poultry, pastured pork, and even some really great seafood. Uh, Butcher Box has just been a really great partner now going on three years. Uh, I will tell you, occasionally, and it, it usually has nothing to do with Butcher Box, occasionally I hear from somebody that says, hey, my Butcher Box looks like somebody kicked it three or four times before they delivered it. And again, folks, that's that's a delivery company. And what I can tell you is I always heard, but their customer service took care of it. And if something seems a little bit like really shouldn't have happened, I'll, I'll CC uh, our contact over there, Dan, and it's always handled. They are a top-notch company. They really are. And they have – they started when – when we started with them as a sponsor, they were brand new. They've grown into a national brand, and they've stuck by us, and they have taken care of our people all the way. Check them out today. And remember, you can get a discount on every box for life, $10 a box. It's $120 a year as an MSB member. Next up today, somebody that knows a little bit about saving money and building wealth, uh, John Pugliano, member of the Expert Council, also a podcast host in his own right of the Wealth Steading Podcast. If you guys want to learn, really learn, about the fundamental principles of building wealth in your life, how to stay on top of the markets, how to know what a good investment is and what a good investment is not. You want to listen to uh, John Pugliano at the Wealth Steading Podcast at WealthSteading.com. And with that, let's go ahead and introduce uh, our special guest today, Neil Spackman. Um, again, I, I've found this man to be one of the hardest working, most influential people that I've ever met. Uh, in fact, he might be... I would say definitely top five most influential people in the world that I've ever met in real life. And talking to him, you'd never know it. He's one of the most humble, hardworking people I know. And with that, hey, Neil, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Happy to be on here. Man, I'm glad to have you on. I first became aware of you and your work uh, through Jeff Lawton. And we'll talk about that project as well when you went out to uh, Saudi Arabia and did this amazing project in the middle of the desert. Um, and I remember, I mean, you had just really gotten started, and you're like, I'm taking this thing on. And it, that was through Permaculture Voices and all that I, I first uh, became aware of you. Um, but what I, what I really wanted to get you on to talk about today is some of your new work. Uh, I heard a podcast interview with you and some of the things that you're doing with marine systems. It just kind of blew me away. And we haven't done a deep dive into permaculture for a bit on TSP, so I was I was like really excited to get you on to talk about this. This is like, as far as I'm concerned, it's like world changing stuff. But can we can we back up for a minute from all of that and just like how how does Neil Spackman end up in the world of permaculture? Like, take us back to before you were, and and what what led you down that oh, path? Oh goodness, probably. Um. I I served an LDS mission in Guatemala between 2000 and 2002, and that was when I really, sometime in there, it really got me interested in poverty and the environment and international development and that kind of stuff. I did I did a lot of service work down there, like digging wells and helping people who hauled firewood for a job, like haul an extra load for a day. So I I was you know, in some pretty, some pretty poor and rural areas. And it got me interested in sustainability and food systems and sustainability in the environment. And I ended that um, trip in 2002 and was there during 9-11. That's how I ended up being interested in the Middle East. 
And at some point in my mid twenties, I said, you know what? I just, I'm passionate about this stuff, about sustainability and food, sustainability in the built environment. And somewhere along there, I discovered permaculture. I don't remember exactly what the catalyst was, um, but Toby's book was the first permaculture book I read. Um, Toby, who was also at Permaculture Voices with us that first year. Um, and at some point, I I was working as a professional news reader. I was reading um, newspapers out of the Middle East and writing up reports on current events, and that went to clients we had in State Department and DOD and a couple other places. Um, and I didn't enjoy that job, but through that job, I met somebody who was doing this project in Saudi Arabia where they offered me a chance to go and do it. So it had been a passion of mine for a number of years. I had, you know, read everything I could get my hands on, but had very little experience. Um, and then Albeda, which was the project in, in Saudi, was my chance to pivot into doing this stuff professionally. So that's that's kind of the short version of that story. And can you tell people, just give them like a mile-high view of what that project was, how big it was, and what you guys yeah. did with it because it really when people talk about greening the desert you know like because that's what got me into permaculture is I saw Lawton's first greening the desert project but it was a relatively yeah. small area and having practiced this stuff myself now for well over a decade I know a small area is one thing a a broad acre and this is really really broad mileage project and then oh by the way that you, you get like two inches of rain a year or something crazy like that good luck like what you guys did was amazing it was that was an adventure so i was living with primarily two tribes of folks who had been nomadic as recently as five years before i met them like people who had been settled by government policy and government incentive, but whose culture and heritage was nomadic pastoralism in the Saudi desert. And with a team of men from these two different tribes, we prototyped a system that would um, essentially reconvert deforested desert into a silvopasture, where we were leaning into the, you know, their expertise as camel and sheep and goat herders, right? Their knowledge of just animal husbandry in general, but finding a way to key that back into a system that would restore ecological function, um, heal the water cycle, get the mineral cycle functioning again. And so we, we had um, essentially a hundred acre prototype site where we built this system out Um and we reversed about a century of desertification in under a decade. And uh, it's not within that same region. It hasn't expanded, except that some of the people I worked with have done this on land that is theirs. But the methodologies, the systems that we've come, that we came up with together have since been adopted by a number of provinces. Um, according to, to folks that I've, spoken with privately and that that's not an announced thing where they've said oh thanks to Albeda, we're doing this this way 
But um, from people that I know in, in a couple of the ministries, they've said, yeah, we're pretty much just copying what you did. So it has been it has been adopted. And because the site was a fractal, the geography of our site scales up and down across every watershed in the region. It, it was something that is applicable across large, large swaths of land um, in the Western Arabian Peninsula. And I would say a number of other desert watersheds globally. So it was, um, that's how I kind of got into this stuff professionally and, in land management and ecological restoration and permaculture was a foundational a foundational aspect of it absolutely and what you did there just so people are clear on it it's not like a bunch of people with gardens it is a broad scale restoration of the the native ecosystem using i think some plants maybe are not originally considered native but it's you did try to bring it back to what it was so that it could be basically an, an, an like a human-animal-managed system. So it's not about growing, and maybe they're growing some here or there, some tomatoes or whatever. It's more about the civil pasture model, moving these animals through the system. I know you did things with bees. Can you kind of talk about some of the the plants that made it? Because a lot of them didn't. And, you know, you guys did yep. some irrigation, but my understanding was, like, you didn't irrigate any more than the system was capable of giving back to the aquifer. It, it was really, like... A, a difficult thing and just kind of talk about what actually worked out of it what 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 it looks like now we can give some people we can mm. give people a link to you know your videos and all so they can see cause it's amazing nothing surplants that but like what kind of trees what kind of system and, and also could you talk a little bit about how eventually you turned off the irrigation and and they begged you yeah. not to they're like please don't do this and yeah. you're like it has to it has to go on its own or it's not sustainable that's it. Um, so we we were in the foothills of the mountains that run north and south along the, the Western Arabian Peninsula. So we had 60 millimeters on average of rain a year, which is just over two inches. But we also, in my nine years there, we, did, we had two different three-year periods with no rain at all. Um, so that average isn't, it's not extremely useful in terms of depicting what the actual situation's like. Um, when, um, when it rains, you get these massive floods, right? Because the watersheds collect all the water up in the mountains and then it rushes out to the Red Sea. So it's, the hydrology is, um, it's really messed up because you're losing 80 to 90% of all the fresh water that falls on the land, you know, in 12 to 24 hour events. So the first thing we did was we came up with a, a water management system in these mountains and it, just a lot of earthworks, um, some key line based stuff, some more typical permaculture based stuff like swales. Um, and a lot of Zuni bowls and check dams and, and more mountainous watershed type structures, um, like they teach at the Kivira coalition. But, um, that gave us a, a measurement. Every time it rained, we were actually able to measure how much water we caught. And then we'd say, okay, if we assume we don't get any more water for 24 months, what can we actually grow? with this amount. So we had a water budget, essentially. We were measuring how much we caught and then saying, this is the limit to what we can use. 
And then we know that it's something that's sustainable as a managed system. So we, we actually ended up using, in the establishment of, of that 100-acre prototype, we used about 20,000 cubic meters of water in the establishment phase, and that was between 2010 and 2016. And over that same period, we caught about 50,000 cubic meters of water in our system. So we're, if you don't account for evapotranspiration, which I didn't really have a great way to measure, but we put twice as much water in the ground as we, more than twice as much water in the ground as we took out to establish the system. Um, which for me was a key metric because it's like, well, if if we're just depleting groundwater to get this going, then there's no point because at some point it's going to collapse on itself. So understanding that water situation was really critical. Um, and then we trialed about a dozen different species of trees that um, some of which Jeff actually helped me select and some of which I found on my own through research. But um, the idea was, we want trees that are going to live here and thrive given the harsh conditions, but that are also going to either um, provide some kind of soil amendment in the form of nitrogen fixation or some kind of product that we can actually develop and bring to market. And preferably both, right? Like you want the microclimate creation, but you also want a financial resilience coming off of whatever you're growing. And out of those dozen trees, the very best one was a local moringa, which has never been developed commercially. It's actually a side project I'm working on right now. But this is this is called Moringa Peregrina. It's native to Oman and the Sinai Peninsula and used by Bedouin tribes in those regions. Uh, but it's never been produced commercially. And it, um, the oil, the, what, what we were going to sell off of that was the oil. The oil is quite expensive. Um, and then it was going to produce animal fodder on top of that. The other ones that did well was a, a local prosopis, which is a mesquite. But there is a mesquite native to Arabia. Um, it's prosopis cineraria. We also did uh, the Juliflora, which is quite hated and despised in that region of the world um, because it's so invasive. The ones we planted, we took from a grove down the road where it was, I mean, it's essentially been naturalized, but the it, bureaucrats and environmentalists who are involved in in this kind of thing, they hate this particular mesquite, which is Prosopis Juliflora. Um, which, which is, I think, uh, justified in some cases, but for us, it was, well, whatever, that, whatever can grow here and produce something we want it. So we use some of that one as well. And then a Zizifus, which is a jujube, um, Zizifus spina Christi did very well, produces a very expensive honey and also a very small fruit that you can jam or jelly. Um, and then all the local acacias that came up on their own, which are native and, and, you know, they just came up in the space in between where we were planting and we were happy to have them. That's, that's what did the best for us. That's that seed reservoir uh, that is there that people generally don't realize. Like you get this going and then there's, there's all of this, there used to be something there. Like, I think we should be clear 
the place you're restoring, you're truly restoring. People think of desert and they think of like movies and it's like vast seas of sand and whatever. And, you know, most yeah. desert is what you would call scrub desert or forested scrub desert, like where there yeah. are things that grow there. They're just not it, – it's, it's never, you know, without – extreme artificial means going to look like the northeastern United States. It's not going to look like, you know, the mountains of New York or New Hampshire. That's not what we're saying when we say forest, but most desert has, you know, vegetation in significant amounts. We've just kind of screwed it up, and you guys are trying to kind of put it back. And on the invasive stuff, like, I've been digging a lot more into that world and finding out that for every one species that truly is a problem as an invasive species, there's 99 that are fixing things that nothing else can fix. That's, that's my gut sentiment as well. Is And, and I had to defend myself in front of uh, some a bunch of different ministry officials on that particular tree. Um, and I think I held my own because I said, look, you're, you've got these people out here. They are absolutely destroying everything, and I've got a species that can allow them to make a living while re eliminating that destruction of everything else. Um, and they took it into consideration and still asked us not to grow anymore. But um, it, it's, it's not intuitive to think of desertification happening in a desert, uh, but that is the case in many places around the world. And and for me, we didn't have access to data per se, but I made it a habit of finding the oldest people in every community that I got introduced to and asking them, what did these places used to look like when you were little? Right. And I think without exception, I never had an exception to this. They'd say, oh, well, When I was little, I used to go with my grandpa up to this part of the mountains, and we had flowing water, and we had all these trees, um, and now none of that's there anymore, right? And and I do have I do have a, a good friend in my video, in one of these wadis or these dry river valley beds, who's saying, look, I used to not be able to see the mountains on the other side of this valley because of all the trees, and there are no trees there anymore. It's just been serious deforestation which leads to crazy drought flood cycles um and just bare ground everywhere you know i don't i don't know if it was one of your videos or a video about the area it might have been one of yours where there was a a gentleman he was speaking uh some form of arabic so it was translated but it was about that very subject there used to be trees and whatever and someone asked him well, where'd the trees go? And he said something to the effect of, people cut down trees, it's what they do. And it was like, oh, yeah, that, wow, that that might have been your video. Like, it hurt when he said it. And I was, I'm thinking about that along with this concept of, like, we're growing these trees, they have monetary yields, they have products that come out of them. And the only way I see to fix this is to make it, We, I think you and I would both just look at it and from an Earth perspective say, it is more valuable to have that tree there than to not have that tree there. But it, we have to actually create a situation where it's more economically advantageous for the person that lives. Because you can even say, well, you can make this grand scale argument that, you know, we're economically better off with a forested planet. That, okay, fine, I agree. But the person that lives there that has to feed their kids has to look at that tree and say, at least I'll get more out of that tree over 10 years than I will out if I just cut it down. 
and they have to be able to make it that 10 years for them to be willing to do that calculus. Because I remember when I was broke living on ramen. You know, I, I didn't give a shit about next week. I was thinking, how do I get through this week? And, and I think it's we sit in a place, and I hate this word because it's so overused, but we do sit in, in a developed world in a place of privilege where we can think that way. And it, like you, you were in, you were on missionary trips, and all. I served in the military in Central America and South America. Like, if you don't get outside of this bubble that we live in, I don't think you really understand the decision. Like, why would that person cut that tree down so they can live? Right? I mean, it's like asking, why would you breathe? Like you're using up the air, but I need to live, right? And that's how, like, if you can make that resource valuable, then they'll protect it. They'll defend it with their lives instead of take it away. Well, you, you've hit the nail on the head. This is actually the underlying thesis of the company I'm running now. Uh, so that was my video. That, that's my dear friend, Abdirazak Al-Adwani. Um, he's one of my favorite people on earth, but he, he took me to his home where he was born, you know, and it's this one room stone thing that his grandpa made. And he's, and it's, but it's, it's this connection between economy and ecology that is so poorly understood by people who haven't had to live this right where there's, there's an inextricable connection between poverty and ecological degradation. Everywhere you find ecological degradation, you will find poverty next door to it, um, where the pattern is people need to meet their short-term needs, and they do it with destructive practices that are unsustainable. Um, and in my experience, they know that that is the case, right? For people who are cutting down trees, they know they shouldn't, but they got to feed their family tomorrow. And Oftentimes in these communities that I've, you know, been introduced to or, or consulted in, it's that they they even know what the solutions are a lot of the time, right? They'll they'll say, Oh well, we wish we could do this and then we could stop these destructive practices and start rebuilding whatever resource it is, whether it's a forest or a fishery or, or whatever it or soil, whatever it may be. Oftentimes it is a lack of access to resources, a lack of know-how, a lack of access to technology, um, and and then oftentimes a lack of organization or political power to uh, to be able to pull those solutions off. And since since leaving Saudi Arabia, I've I mean I've done short projects and and have some longer ones in East Africa and West Africa in Europe, in Mexico, in Colombia, and this pattern is emerging everywhere I go. It's that just that there's this connection between degradation and poverty where they are reinforcing each other and each is getting worse. And the underlying premise of all the work that I do is we can reverse this where just as degradation is causing poverty, if we restore ecology, we can start creating wealth again. And if we tie that wealth to ecological function, then we have aligned incentives of people to take care of the lands and to become stewards rather than to be the source of that degradation. Absolutely. That's a good transition, too, to the work you're doing now. You are doing work 
that involves marine systems now and, and salt water. And I believe some of that even might even be like a situation where you're bringing some of this salt water to uh, irrigation practices in what would otherwise be considered desert. And that probably yeah. has some people a little bit triggered because there is a way to do that that's really stupid. That's not what you're doing. But, like, people tend yeah. to, like, once they know a thing, then that is the thing. And then, you know, that, that's bad. Because if all we're doing is, you know, partially desalinating seawater and dumping it in desert soils, we're going to salt the earth. But yep. there's ways to do this. How are you doing that and making it make sense? So we're we're calling this regenerative seawater agroforestry. But it's basically a set of mangrove and seagrass-based agroecologies. And uh, in a lot of the places where we are starting to work, in between the coast and the beginning of a cactus ecology or a desert ecology, you've got this strip of heavily salinized landscape. Um, and sometimes it's a mudflat, but generally not. Generally, there's no... There's nothing really there. And you get these salt pans, and there's there's essentially no biodiversity on these places. And what we're doing is we're using seawater and aquacultures as the uh, medium and the nutrient to grow essentially constructed mangrove forests and mangrove wetlands. And um, there's a decent model of this on our webpage if people want to go look at it. But essentially, on these landscapes where nobody sees any value in them, there's essentially no biodiversity. There's no, uh, there's no plant life um, because of how salty it is. What we're doing is we're, using, we're building aquaculture systems. And instead of dumping that effluent back into the ocean, which is what most aquacultures do, we're pumping it through this system of seawater-based agroecologies, which includes crops that grow in seawater, like salicornia or sarcocornia or disticlus. Um, we're alley cropping those with mangroves, and then we're doing mangrove woodland, where we are coppicing. And then we're doing mangrove wetland where we're, we can grow algaes, we can grow shellfish or, or lobster or crab, depending on local markets and depending on local ecology. That's what, we, that's what we're trying to tailor all of these designs to. And so it's this transformational system where we're bringing seawater um, onto these areas where it's just full-on degradation, desolate landscapes and using the nutrient from aquaculture effluent to grow these agroecologies based on seawater. And I think that, like, the mangrove truly is a gift to humanity. Like, what, you know, I spent a lot of my life in Florida and fishing mm. and, and backwaters and all, and, like, the diversity, the robustness, and it's as bad as some of the red tide problems are from sugarcane farming and, and housing and, and, and what have you, without the mangroves that are part of that estuary system that comes out where Fort Myers and Sanibel is, it would be a thousand times worse. Like, and, yeah. and when I go there and I fish, and I've been going there since I was a kid in, in the 80s, um, I, it, it's still to this day, now you're talking 40 years almost, right, never ceases to amaze me 
the diversity and the robustness of that ecosystem, even with the red tide that wiped out a huge amount of, of marine life a few years ago. I was just there, you know, three years after that happened, and it's like it's still a sportsman's paradise, and it's managed, you know, very, very – I'm not a fan of government, but I have to say that overall the management of those ecosystems in Florida is, is, is about as good – it's done about as well as a government can. <laughs> and yeah. it, it amazes yeah. me, the diversity. And I when, when we're there, I think, you know what, I could buy one of these big beach houses. I wouldn't have a lot of money left over. But I honestly look around and go, I wouldn't have a grocery bill either. Like the amount of food that's, that's just true. available there. So I think if you're designing that with intention, you, maybe you can even do better. It's they're they're an amazing, amazing ecology, and they. I mean, it's the numbers I've seen is that sixty percent of all ocean life that we know about relies on mangroves during some part of their life cycle whether for the food that they eat or to like spawn or to, I mean, they're, they're absolutely critical. They cover a very tiny amount of the ocean, um, but are, you know, necessary for the health of the oceans. And to, I, I think using them in a productive constructed system is an extremely innovative thing. And, and it's not my innovation. That's I've, uh, I've got, a number of partners who have spent decades developing these seawater systems. Um, and our senior science advisor was a gentleman named Carl Hodges. He passed away earlier this year, but he was, he was the one who came up with the idea. He was like, we've got an infinite resource, which is seawater, right? We're never going to run out of it. Um, and we can produce all this stuff with it, right? We can produce food, we can produce fuel, we can produce fiber, we can do it in circular systems and we're never going to run out of the input. Right. And not only are we never going to r r run out of the input, we don't have to care about fresh water at all. Right. We can be a farm that produces indefinitely. We never have to care about fresh water. And when I, when I wrapped my head around it and I, and I kind of, what I brought to this group was, the permaculture and regenerative mindset of how do we do this as an agroecology rather than in a linear sense where we're still needing to use fertilizers or, or pesticides or whatnot. Um, but it's, it's got mind blowing potential. It's got massive potential to change food and water security situations around the globe. Um, and to, and at the same time to, uh, you know, provide greater habitat for biodiversity, to create new economies for people, for villages, like fishing villages where fisheries are collapsing. The applications are really, um, they're mind-blowing to me. And I'm extremely excited to be a part of it and to be rolling these out. Can you kind of, like, give people a sense of the scale we're talking here? Because if we're talking about mangrove systems, we're not talking a couple dozen acres. We're talking large-scale aquatic systems, maybe some of this, uh, the, 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 the aquaculture component uh, is maybe a, a relatively small area, but the actual management, we're talking broad scale in a big way, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, our we've just leased 
2,700 hectares in Ghana, and we're trying to add another 5,000 to that. So our phase one in Ghana is 15,000 acres. Um, in Mexico, we are um, we're trying to purchase a site that's about 3,500 acres by the end of this year. Um, but then the, the other thing we're doing with it is we're also doing reforestation. Because often, and this, this goes back to the, that original point that you made, the, the premise, um, where degradation and poverty are next to each other and, and interrelated. Um, in the communities that we're working with and partnering with, especially in Mexico, but also in Ghana, um, they've come to us and said, uh, and let me give you just a bit of context here. In both situations, these are coastal fishing communities where their catch has decreased by 90% in the last decade. Um, in both situations, they're starting to um, hunt illegal species like sea turtles, because a sea turtle will feed your family for a week. Um, and there is massive deforestation and degradation associated with that. And what they've said is we want to bring our mangrove forests back um, and at the same time, if our, if your mangrove system works, right, the aquaculture and the, this economic system works, then we can put our fishery at rest for a number of years and allow that fishery to come back. So we're, we're combining this circular economic system with reforestation. Um, and in some cases, we're likely to do seagrass restoration as well. And so it's, yeah, we're, we're looking at massive, massive landscapes. In uh, Nayarit, um, the site that the Ministry of Environment took us to was 40,000 hectares. That's, said, that's amazing. We've got, we've got communities here. They need jobs. They need jobs that aren't destroying the environment, but we also need to bring the mangrove forest back. That's amazing, and what what I love about the marine systems is the potential for spread and um, adjacent impact is higher. So I can go put in a beautiful permaculture project, say 500 acres, really big one, and there is no doubt that beyond the borders of that 500 acres there will be an impact, right? But if Absolutely. It, it, but but if the guy right next to me that owns you know 2,000 acres plows it flat and grows cotton. My impact on that 2,000 acres is inherently limited because he's mechanically preventing it from occurring, right? He doesn't want it to occur. He doesn't want diversity. He wants cotton. When you get into an ocean system, we've done a lot to damage the, the marine systems as a whole, but if you establish uh, 3,500 acres, uh, a mangrove-based estuary system, you know, there's no doubt that you're going to have thousands of acres of water where no, they, you know, nobody's plowing the ocean where you're going to have this, yeah. um, unseen maybe because you're looking at the surface as, as rippled water beneath the surface. The impact on marine life as a whole goes way beyond whatever borders are on your control in a way that I think I'm not sure can be duplicated on land unless the land is allowed to rest, like you're saying. But since nobody owns, you know, this, 50-acre piece of the ocean, thank God, that yeah. that impact, that peripheral impact can be much greater, if that makes sense. 
Yep, absolutely. So the the yeah, I think the positive externalities are going to be wider ranging because you don't have that neighbor, right? Our neighbor is the ocean. Um, there are ways to measure it though that we're that we want to implement. We haven't done it yet, but we're we're in the process of setting up setting it up. Um, are you familiar with bioacoustics, Jack? Um, I think I know what you're talking about. Are you talking about things like how the whales are affected by the sounds from the ships? Is that what you mean? There's, uh, that's that's related. This is okay. this is a way to measure changes in biodiversity without needing a bird watcher to go out and just like take notes of everything he sees. What we're doing is we um, on all of our projects we're setting up recording instruments where they record all the sounds on our site and then that audio track gets played through a computer and an AI system and eventually that computer says these are all the species making these sounds on your site let me tell you that's the most uh, badass geeky nerd computer shit I have heard in 2021 that that is freaking awesome fun. Um, because you don't you don't need to hire a person. You just set up a boombox on a pole, essentially, and put a Bluetooth thing on it, and it feeds the audio files into a computer, and then it says, okay, at this time of day, you had these species of bird on site making these sounds, and, it, and over time, it will track the increase in biodiversity on our site. And you can also do this in the water. You can record the sounds that different species of fish make in the water. Um, and that's, that's aqua bioacoustics and then there's standard bioacoustics. And we're planning on doing both because I'm quite certain that in the near to medium term, people are going to start paying for biodiversity credits the same way they're paying for, for carbon credits. So I think I think we can actually, aside from just it's the right thing to do and we want to track it, I do think there's going to be a way to monetize it in the future. Yeah, I agree. I also kind of want to go back to this, like the the peripheral effects too, like because we 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 do have a huge overfishing problem uh, in in our oceans, oh, yeah. and we we do. But oh, yeah. I think sometimes maybe we we want a clear point this the, the guy with the fishing trawler is the is the enemy and like we, we don't look at the totality so i mentioned like where we fish in florida i'll take trips out to some of the reefs and we'll catch really big like black grouper and red grouper and things like that mm. and then when we're fishing the inlets and the mangroves and stuff you know you'll catch a red grouper but he's like the size of a sunfish right little bitty thing yeah well if he's out there on that reef he's dead right so What's happening is those fish are moving into these these estuary systems very short term, depositing their their eggs, and then they're leaving. And the young are growing up in that place like a nursery where there's lots of things that will eat them there. But if you put a four inch little grouper swimming around, you know, a, a drop off off the Florida coast, a Goliath or something's going to just swallow it right up. They need to kind of put some size on, develop their their, their fish sense and, and, and their capabilities, and then they move back in. And there's that's just one example of a couple species. Like there's hundreds and hundreds of species that we think of as being open water species, but their early years 
They need these estuary systems. It, right, and if you take that away, I don't care what you do to clamp down on fishing in the open ocean, you'll never fix it because there's no babies. Exactly. You need a nursery. And people think permaculture well, and people think permaculture is just about chickens and pigs and trees and food forests, right? Like, like, I really don't see a place that this type of thinking can't make things better than it. You know, maybe not perfect, but better than it is. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, and and it beyond, you know, beyond the biodiversity piece, it's it's uh, protection from storms. If you're ever boating in a storm. You're supposed to go more up in the mangroves. It's the safest place you can be. Um, and I, we're not doing this, but there's, you know, rumors about saying, well, if Miami is going to be underwater, maybe we just need to plant a bunch of mangroves because they can, they can grow five to ten millimeters of of soil per year. If the water's rising at a rate slower than that, then they can you can build a protective border around a city with this stuff instead of just building a giant concrete wall. Um, but protection from hurricanes, protection from storm surges, they definitely cool. I mean, in, in the, in our, in my partner's prototype system of this mangrove agroforestry, which they did in Eritrea in East Africa, there's a video about that. Actually, if you look up greening Eritrea, um, you'll find a video about that project but they they cooled the local climate by two degrees celsius by bringing this mangrove forestry system into a desert um it's gonna it's going to increase the water cycle the small water cycle it's going to improve the hydrology like the the externalities here as far as i can tell are all positive and they're significant uh, particularly at scale. Yeah, yeah. I, again, I just think this is awesome. Can you talk about maybe some of the things that these systems will be able to produce as yields? Because as we discussed earlier, like without a yield, then the system doesn't have enough value to the people that need the yield to protect it. In other words, yep. now they're going to they're going to go from farming to mining, right? And we we don't want to do that. So, what kind of yields are we looking at? Um, and, and kind of in various areas, because you have like an area that's, it sounds to me anyway, like a, more of an intensively managed, you're maybe pumping some water, moving some water or something like that. And then you have this entire kind of estuary system that is that is balanced off of it and part of it. Yeah. So we, um, we're starting with aquacultures. Um, in Mexico, it's going to be a blue shrimp that we'll start with. We may move into other aquacultures there. Um, then we're producing a lot of wood and leaf material in the woodland, which can go to a variety of different products. We're growing, um, salicornia, sarcocornia, disticlus, um, in one area and on another project, it's going to be sea kales. And, uh, those are all halophytic crops, each of which have their own different kind of market some of which we will further process and some of which we'll just sell raw. Um, and then we're doing algae production, macroalgae. Uh, Gracilaria is likely going to be one of the main ones most of the time, but not all of the time. And then oysters, 
Um, crab and lobster, if if the if it's in the right location. Sea cucumbers, if it's in the right location. The the beauty of this thing is that it's it's extremely flexible because we're working within an ecology. Um, so depending on local markets and and proximity to export markets, we can do all sorts of different things. Um, but salicornia is a standard one. Oysters are going to be a standard one. I've got a great oyster expert who's been producing oysters for over 15 years and sells his stuff in Los Cabos. Um, and he's coming on as our oyster expert to help us determine where and what type and, and which system in the different projects we've got. Overall, um, we're looking at, in general, a, between a 9 and 11% IRR on these systems, um, which isn't, it, it's not like software, but it, in terms of agriculture, that's very, very good returns. Um, and then the other pieces of it are the real estate, um, the carbon, because it is carbon sequestering. We are going to play that carbon crediting market, especially now that market is heating up. Um, and then it's a, it's a mix of what do we sell locally versus what do we export? What do we process versus what, what do we just sell whole or raw? So it's, it gets quite complex when we're talking about product, but, um, but I feel confident about it. Well, and then it's like we were talking about the peripheral effects. So then there's this entire second tier, I would imagine, like you have a mangrove system, you're going to have native species uh, move in and, and establish beachheads and start to reproduce and develop populations. And then that's another yield that can be harvested more from like a, a small-scale fishing operation or something like that. Yep. So there, there is a that, – that is kind of like a phase two Um particularly where we are partnering with villages or communities who have come and said, look, we can't, we're not catching any more fish. Um, the idea is that if we already have sales of goods off of the initial system and we give that fishery rest, right, we allow it to recover, then we can also give these folks access to higher value markets and built-in marketing through the sale of goods already happening off of these other systems. So that is something we're looking at for, for like a phase two with these projects. It's, but I think it's at least a five-year process before we get there. Yeah, that, that would seem reasonable, but it's, it's, it's very exciting, right, like to be able to look that way. And I think like creating jobs for people in all of this is a huge thing. And so in time, you, you start to get into some more sophisticated knowledge-based jobs. Like, So if you're going to do that, you don't want to end up back where you were. So you just can't have people coming out with, you know, guild nets and netting everything out. You have to kind of set, um, you know, set limits to, uh, to population and consumption, right? The third, third principle yeah. of permaculture, right? Yeah. So now you need, you need to develop local expertise as marine biologists that can say, this particular fish species we can harvest, you know, X number or X number of tons of per annuum without harming the population, right? Then you need some level of local governance, uh, law enforcement, if you would, manage, wildlife management is a term I would prefer better for that. Like, let's make sure that everybody's, you know, staying within the, the, the guide. So you're developing this whole economic ecosystem that cooperates with the biological one. And in fact, I, I almost don't think there's a, 
differentiator there because just like the predator fish needs the minnow so it can live, the human needs these things so that they can live. So the human is a biological component in this. That's right. It's just we're channeling that behavior properly. That's right. And it's it's sometimes I like to think about this in terms of um, becoming indigenous. Um, and I'm using the word indigenous in the sense that it, it means that people belong to a place and are integrated with the ecology of a place, right? Which isn't the case with all indigenous peoples historically, but that's, that's how I'm using that term when I think about it this way. It's how do we, instead of people being, you know, the cause of the destruction, how do people become the keystone species on which the rest of this entire system hangs, right? And if, if we, if we can adopt that mindset and say, okay, look, there are ways for us to bring, bring the fishery back, bring the forest back and do it in a way that every person involved in that is wealthier at the end. Um, that's, that to me is the, you know, the Holy grail and, and the, the vision that we're trying to pursue here. And it gets, it gets complicated very quick. Um, but as you said, right, it's, it's management of a common resource as a community um, becomes a necessary part of it. But it also means that it's, an, it's a resource that can persevere indefinitely. Absolutely. And, I mean, this is all great, but are you going to lose your permaculture card because you've committed the sin of being a capitalist, right? Like your, your, your company is a company that actually operates for a profit. And I'm sure this is much to the lamentation of many a, a purple breather that, you know, you're not a nonprofit. And, but I think we've kind of been hitting on exactly why you guys made that decision. And it's what I've always said. Like, don't think a company is benevolent just because they're a nonprofit. There's plenty of CEOs with jets that uh, run nonprofits, right? But, but I think we do need to be able to earn a return on our investment of our time, our labor, our talent, our capital, or what we're doing is also, and I won't even stop using the word sustainable. It's not regenerative. Like, we should be able to be yeah. doing these systems to the point where they actually begin to far outproduce the inputs, but then they actually begin to self-replicate and spread. And I don't think, you know, you can, you can argue about the way it should be. Like, people should just care and love and whatever. But, like, the reality is you cannot get another country to get on board with doing this. And, and, and the scale we're talking here, you kind of need, like, national level or at least regional state level you know, like in being invited in and given the opportunity, yep. you're not going to get that if you can't say, look at the economic output. Like you have to have that too. Yeah. yeah. No, it's well, and this is the decision I came to when I was still in Saudi Arabia. Because um, in Saudi Arabia, I spent at least, you know, a third of my time, not a quarter to a third of my time fundraising, right? Going out and you know, asking for handouts in order to go and do our work. And and at some point, I was like, you know what, there's got to be a way to do this where I'm not just helping preserve culture and environment. There's got to be a way that this can be financially sustainable as well. Um, and, it, no, it's exactly as you said. 
when we're talking, the, the reason that governments are willing to talk to us is because we are creating jobs and creating economies, right? Because that, that is the linchpin for this whole environmental thing. And we, we tend to not, in popular discourse, we tend to separate these out. And, and it's, it's a big mistake, in my opinion, because if you take all the, let, let's say there's a human set of problems, and an environmental set of problems, right? The human set is poverty, want, ignorance, um, injustice, crime, war. war you know, you, we all know this set of problems, right? This human set. And then the environmental set, we, we separate it out and we say, okay, we've got um, aquifer depletion, soil erosion, deforestation, desertification, biodiversity and habitat loss, ocean acidification, um, fishery depletion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and the only way historically that we have ever tried to address one of these sets of issues is by exacerbating the other, right? When we try to address the human set of issues, right, we, we create economies, we, we create jobs, we educate, et cetera, et cetera. We only ever do it in a way that it damages the environment. Right. And if, when we try to address environmental issues, we do it in a way that it exacerbates the human set of problems because we we cordon off these large areas and say no human is allowed to access any of the resources in this thing. Right. We, we make it off limits to people, which in turn means that there's now fewer resources for people to access to try to solve their own sets of issues. And this 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 separation of the human from the environmental and, and these, these different sets of problems fails to recognize how connected they are, right? Which means we're never going to solve both of them if we have that mindset. And both of them are serious, serious issues. But we'll never solve uh, both of them if we... have to do both. If, 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 if we, we, we do it the right way. Pick either one and try to solve only one and you'll never solve either. Right, you have to. Yeah. They have to be simultaneously a, a, a attacked, and I think there's like another reality here. Like there is a value in increasing the value of a piece of land. Period. So if we made it really mundane, and I bought completely barren 400 acres, and I broke that into 100 four-acre lots, and said I'm going to sell lots for people to build their four-acre homestead, there would be a certain value per four acres. Let's say. I don't know. It's really cheap. Let's say it's five grand an acre, so twenty thousand dollars a lot. If I put in roads so that people can get you know access roads that are well designed and maintained, then the value per four acre lot will go up. If I put in electricity because it's going to be an on grid community, and now you know when you build your house you have power, and if I put in water of some kind, and so you have power and water for utilities, now the value of that lot is even more. If I you know, if I put a found, you know, if I clear the area for a foundation, so now all you have to do is design your house and have it built. Now you're going to pay me more for the lot. And odds are, I'm not going to go out and do all that work, right? I'm going to hire companies to do it. Now I'm not going to hire these companies because it's my dream to see a hundred houses built, right? I'm going to hire those companies because I know that if I pay the money and they do the work right, that the va underlying value of the real estate will go up enough that I'll make more money when I transfer the ownership of that land. And now I sound very capitalist, and everybody that tuned in because of your name, not mine, is angry. But hold on, right? But like nobody, 
Nobody seems to have a problem with that concept. Now, remember, I said my 400 acres was barren and bare. There was no trees. If I have somebody come in and plant 10 trees per acre on that, the person who's buying it to put a house on it doesn't care about biodiversity or whatever. They'll still pay me more money for a treed lot than an untreed lot. So those trees have likewise increased the underlying fundamental value of that piece of real estate. And so it's only right that you would say the person that comes in and plants you know, 1,200 trees, like you would compensate them for that. You would expect them to do it because they want to see trees grow. Like it, it, all of a sudden, the tree because like the tree can add tremendous value in so many ways, m monetarily and aesthetically and you know biologically, etc. And what you guys are doing is creating a tremendous ROI on the underlying real estate. Like if you go look at an estuary system that's de denuded, degraded, there's no fish in it, it's it's eroded, it's erosive. When it does rain in the desert up upstream, all the sediment just washes out. It's forming deltas of clay. Nothing's growing on it. Like if you try to sell that piece of land to anybody, you're like I don't want it. It's a problem. Once you fixed it, what what is the what do you think the increase in value per hectare is? It's got to be almost astronomical. So maybe your direct ROI is, you know, I think you said nine to eleven percent or something like that on, on your work. But but the the deal that the, the cut a lot more than yeah. So I'm saying the deal the customers getting is, is one way to look at it. Right? It's incredible if you think about it that way because they don't know how to do it. They can't do it. You can, and you get a tiny piece of the actual value you're creating compared to what the entity that's controlling that asset gets. Yep. Yep. So this is this is also a key part of our of our business plan is, you know, we're looking at landscapes where other people don't see any value at all. Um, because which is kind of what Mollison said in kind of conventional thinking, there is literally no value to these landscapes. Which which kind of isn't that really what Mollison built permaculture to do? Like if you read permaculture one, he's basically like, you know, all this arable land that just grows tons of food. Don't worry about that. Like, go find the undervalued, denuded, degraded landscape and turn it into something productive. Not only is that land more affordable, more accessible, but people will notice more. Right? Nobody, yep. nobody cares when you buy, like, a thousand acres in Iowa in the middle of the Corn Belt in this deep, rich, black soil, and you plant civo pasture. They're, they care, but they're also kind of like, well, of course it worked. But when you go do something yeah, like you're talking about, like, people, it actually spreads the mission more, doesn't it? I think I think that's one of the only comparative advantages to desert work um, is that the the visible transformation is quite emotional and it reaches people at a very visceral level. Uh, and that's you know it's harder in the desert. There's no question about that. I, I'm I don't know if I can say authoritatively that it's more expensive in the desert as opposed to elsewhere because I haven't done it elsewhere. But the that transformation, the the change that people can perceive, um, is one is one of the only comparative advantages. Yeah, I would but agree. Everything's harder, right? But yeah, yeah. So, if people want to learn more about what you're doing now, and, and can, is there a website they can check out and, and see some of this work that you're actually doing and what have you? 
Yeah, um, regenerativeresources.co is our company website. I am redoing it at the moment where we are going to put um, our first three sets of projects up and uh, have a lot more media being created. Uh, that's underway. I am on Instagram. I post some personal stuff on Instagram, but it's mostly work-related. Um, and then if if um, folks want to reach out, my, my email is nspackman at regenerativeresources.co. Well, Neil, again, I really appreciate you being with us today, and I'll make sure there's uh, links in the show notes to all of your resources, including uh, your video on the story of uh, the work that you did in the Saudi Arabian desert. And with that, guys, uh, I really hope you enjoyed today's interview. Neil's an amazing man. I, I've had the good fortune of meeting him in real life a few times, and um, he's one of the most humble people that I know of. Uh, in the world that's making as big of an impact as he is. You, you, you may not really, I think, get a true understanding of how much this guy's work has impacted the world already because he is such a humble person. And uh, we were fortunate to have him with us today. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you like the work that we do, you can always support us by doing a few things, and one of the really easy ones is you can just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you start your online shopping there, no matter what you buy, you will help us and the work that we do. Uh, I don't have a, a full write-up review today because this is one of the rare times where I have a, a, a product that I'm recommending that I don't own. And the only reason I didn't buy one today is I'm full up on generators. I've got, you know, two is one, one is none, three is for me, and four is more when it comes to generators. Uh, so I just don't need any more. If I needed another generator, and certainly if I wasn't in possession of a generator, I'd really look at getting this one. And the fact that you can get this now on sale in the middle of hurricane season, delivered to your door for free shipping from Amazon is kind of crazy. Um, Everybody knows kind of the gold standard in, in kind of the smaller inverter generators of the Honda, the EU-1000, 2200, etc. If you wanted to pick the generator that's probably as close in quality as you can get to the Honda at half the price, it would be Champion Generators. And I've never used a generator I'm going to tell you about today, but I've, I had a Champion Generator, a quite a bit larger version thereof, uh, that I got with the RV that I had for a number of years, and it never let me down. It was just a fantastic generator and quite quite quiet running for the size that it was. Uh, the one that I have for you today is the Champion 2,000-watt ultralight dual-fuel inverter generator, and it's on sale for 440 bucks and change, $444, I think, to be exact. Um, that's an incredible deal on a generator that has almost the power of the Honda for, for well under half the price and is dual fuel, meaning you can run it on gasoline or you can run it on propane out of the box. No modifications, no special kits, nothing at all. You just have amazing on-demand power that will run dual fuel. And if that wasn't enough, it also is parallel ready, meaning, yes, you can get two of them, and you can get a kit that hooks the two of them together, and then they run uh, as though they're one big generator. So you have two generators churning out 2,000 uh, starting watts apiece. you got a 4,000-watt starting watt generator, two generators running side-by-side -side with a parallel kit. The parallel kit's on sale today. Uh, it's, it's selling for 72 bucks. And the way I worked out the numbers is you can buy a Honda uh, 2200 for $1,100, and no one would 
say you made a bad decision. It's a great generator. It sells for that price every day. Or you can get two of the Champion 2,000-watt dual fuel generators for 880 bucks, 888 bucks. You can get the 50-amp parallel kit for $72. And that will give you 4K as an individual generator or two separate 2,000-watt generators, the ability to use either fuel, uh, gas, or propane for $960. So you can literally get two generators plus the parallel kit, have all the flexibility of the dual fuel, running them together, running them separate. One breaks, you still have one for less than one 2,200-watt Honda. And I know the Champion's not a Honda, but... And is the Honda better? Yeah. Is it that much better? No. No. The way I put it at the end of my write-up today is, sorry, Honda, I love you, but you lose this one badly. Uh, so check this out. If you need a generator in your life, this is one to get. It could be great as your, your small generator, or you could have two of them effectively being your big generator and still have two small generators. And again, the dual fuel is really nice. The other way, if, if you haven't yet become a member of the Member Support Brigade, do consider doing that. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, uh, click on Members to learn more. And with that, let's talk about our song of the day today. So I thought it would be fun to do something for a few weeks anyway, because um, this will clearly run out of steam at some point. But I love music. I really do. And I have a pretty big selection of Pandora uh, stations where you, you select an artist and then you start building a station or a channel around them. And if you've not used Pandora before, it's a pretty cool little service. Song comes on if you, if you don't want to listen to it, but you don't, you don't want it to never come back on that channel again. You just skip. And then it has a thumbs up and thumbs down. If you want to add it to your channel because it's not already there, you hit thumbs up. If you don't want it ever to be on that channel again, you hit thumbs down, and then you don't hear that version of that song at least anymore. And I thought what would be fun is that each week, for a few weeks anyway, I'll play you know this week three songs because it's a three-day week for the main show with the Miyagi recap on Friday. And most weeks I'll play four songs from one of my Pandora channels with This Is The Catch. None of them will be the artist that the channel is based on. So today's uh, song, for instance, is Colder Weather by the Zach Brown Band. And Zach Brown Band is not the channel that this is based on. And you might even think, well, it's probably a country artist. In this case, no, not really. Really? See, uh, Pandora works by the Music Genome uh project, which basically says this song is like this artist's song. And the longer you teach your Pandora channel things, the more it learns what you mean when you say, you know, Joe Bob's channel, like what type of music you're looking for. And the longer you have a channel, the better, think of it like a pet, you've trained it really, really well. So my channels are really, really trained. And even though this is from a country band, then it's not really a country group, person, etc. that this is based on, it fits the style of the music. So this is the fun part. On Friday, when I do the Miyagi Mornings recap, I can add a little piece in at the beginning, and I'll tell you who the week's music was based on, and in the show notes, I'll include um, the link where if you want my Pandora channel, you can add it to your Pandora. So I thought that would be fun. I'm not sure if I'm going to do that on Friday, uh, on the on the Friday yet, or if I'm going to do it on the next Monday, because 
I have a pretty simple process for getting the Miyagi Mornings ones up. So maybe on Mondays I'll tell you the last weeks and give you the new one. So song of the day today, Zach Brown Band, Colder Weather. Really love this song. Thought it's a, a good feeling song to go kind of with this show vibe today. And uh, think about it. Who do you think the channel that this song was based on, and I'm giving you a hint, the person or the group that it's based on is not thought of as country music at all. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I'm Jack Spearco today along with Neil Spackman helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. She'd say Colorado if he'd take her with him Closes the door before the winter lets the cold in And wonders if her love is strong enough to make him stay She's answered by the taillights shining through the window pane He said, I want to see you again But I'm stuck in colder weather Maybe tomorrow will be better Can I call you then? She said, you're a ramming man And you ain't ever gonna change You got a gypsy soul to blame And you were born for leaving At a truck stop diner just outside of Lincoln The night is black as the coffee he was drinking And in the waitress eyes he sees The same old light is shining He thinks of Colorado And the girl he left behind him He said, I want to see you again But I'm stuck in colder weather Maybe tomorrow will be better Can I call you then? She said, you're a rambling man And you ain't ever gonna change You got a gypsy soul to blame And you were born for leaving Born for leaving Well, it's a winding road When you're in the lost and found You, but I need you You know it's you That calls me back here, baby Oh, I want to see you again But I'm stuck in cold I close my eyes, I see you 
No matter where I am I can smell your perfume Through these whispering pines I'm with your ghost again It's a shame about the weather But I know soon we'll be together And I can't wait till then I can't wait till then 